This series on the spiritual disciplines is about giving us the tools to actually fundamentally be changed. We're embarking on the path of disciplined grace. Disciplined because there's a role for us to play. Grace because real inner change is always and only ever a free gift given to us by God. God could have created humans as immovable rocks, like blocks of granite. Instead, he gave us freedom, the capacity for moral, emotional, and spiritual transformation. We can become better people. The key is understanding how. Amen. Have a seat. Very nice to see you all. Um, Well done in making it through the uh, marathon. Congratulations. It's almost like you've run a marathon yourselves. Uh, Well done. Anyway, uh, we are carrying on uh, our series on spiritual disciplines. These are, as we've been saying, um, not in and of themselves Uh, the way we change or are changed, but they are like tools that put us in a place uh, to be able to be changed by His Spirit. They allow us to access His grace more fully. And so we're encouraging everyone. These are sort of not optional extras. These are all part of what it means to follow Jesus. And we're looking at, there are lots of uh, disciplines that people have kind of come up with over the years. Uh, We're looking at a few of them. Today, we're looking at the spiritual discipline of celebration. Now, alongside others that we've looked at, prayer, confession, worship, celebration might feel a little bit incongruous. After all, churches tend to talk uh, quite a lot about things like prayer and worship and confession. Rarely have I heard a sermon about the spiritual importance of partying. And yet, this is a sermon about the spiritual importance of partying. Because the truth is, celebration is actually as important, if not more important, to the Christian life as any of those things that are more commonly deemed spiritual. Celebration is actually at the heart of our faith. After all, the gospel is celebration at the start when the angel visits the shepherds. He says to them, Luke 2, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for the people. And the gospel is celebration. At the end, when Jesus is doing his farewell discourse to his disciples, he says to them this in John 15, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And the gospel is celebration through the middle. When Jesus arrives on the scene, he announces in his manifesto, that his kingdom will be this eternal, supernatural, universal, 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 uh, gone Dutch, uh, universal extension of the Old Testament concept of jubilee. Jubilee, where we get our English word jubilation from, and also our English word jubilee from, celebration. Every 50 years in uh, the Old Testament, the nation of Israel would cancel all debts, all slaves would be freed, No crops would be planted, the land would just be left fallow, and all property would be returned to its original owner. Now, this wasn't some sort of ideologically driven political drive, something that the Israelites thought was the best way to organize their society or to control people. Rather, it was just this natural celebratory response to their experience of the one true God. 
You only do a year of jubilee every 50 years if you know deep down that God can be trusted to provide what's needed. It is a full living out of the belief that the world is the Lord's and everything is in it, everything in it, rather than just saying that and then living like, actually, the world is mine and I just need to grab as much of it as I can. I mean, can you imagine any nation right now, this nation, any other nation, deciding what we're going to do is have a year of jubilee? All the prisoners, they're just free. All the debt, all your student debt, all my mortgage, that's wiped out. Can you imagine anyone ever deciding that that would be a good idea? People would lose their shirts. They would, they would just not, and even if it was implemented, it would not work. No one would agree to it. Because you can't control societies like this. The only reason to do it is because you've experienced this. And you can't help yourself respond to it. Something so radical, so nonsensical and joyous and celebratory only comes as a response to the radical, nonsensical and joyous, celebratory love of God. And that's what Israel did. But there's more, because for us, as followers of Jesus, when he arrives, he announces not just a 12-month period of Jubilee, but that the underlying principle of Jubilee is going to be the very foundation of his eternal kingdom. He says, Luke 4, announcing his manifesto, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news for the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year, the age, the epoch, the whole new world order of the Lord's favor. Good news, that's what the gospel literally means, it's what it is, and good news should and must be greatly celebrated. So that's the biblical position, celebration is us. Here's the scientific. There is a multitude of published research which extols the importance of laughter and fun in all contexts. Laughing releases stress and makes people more approachable and builds trust and increases productivity and extends life expectancy. A man named Norman Cousins famously put the theory of laughter being the best medicine to the test. He was, in 1964, diagnosed with a rare form of crippling tissue disease, and he was given a one in 500 chance of recovery. He chose to treat himself only with vitamin C and laughter. He would watch hours and hours and hours of Marx Brothers films, and then he would carefully document how his body medically responded. He found that 10 minutes of sustained belly laughter would give him two hours of pain-free sleep. It was like the greatest anesthetic he could find. Over time, the disease retreated. He was pronounced completely free from it, and he put it all down to laughter. His case was reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, one of the most prestigious uh, journals, and he went on to study psychoneuroimmunology, and there is a center here at the UCLA Medical Center uh, that is dedicated to that research uh, set up in his honor. Now, I am no doctor. Please do not take medical advice from me. If you are sick, I don't think you should just laugh your way through it. <laughs> However, 
the general point is joy and celebration are very good for us. Something I think we all actually know innately. And because God is good, and because Jesus has come to bring goodness to the human experience, joy is something that he wants for us, all of us, irrespective of our circumstances. So, what is this joy, and how do we get it? I'm going to focus on a passage from that veritable fountain of fun, St. Paul, to uh, try and answer this question. This is Philippians 4, beginning at 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So what is the path to joy? Well, let's start at the end because this final verse really acts as a sort of summary for everything. Whatever you've learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, says Paul, put it into practice. Sometimes I feel like Paul really doesn't help himself. Be more like me, says Paul. It's like he's kind of struggling with self-awareness. A lot of people have got a problem with you, Paul. Just chill, just, you know, acknowledge that actually it's not all about you. Two things briefly on that point, though. One, it's important to take Paul as a whole, not in isolation. This, after all, is the Paul who shows extraordinary humility throughout what he writes. He's the worst of all sinners, he says, not worthy to be an apostle, actually the least of all Christians, worse than everyone. The only reason he does or says anything is not actually on his own account, but it's because of what he has received. And he is just desperate for everyone to receive what he's had. He effectively was a religious terrorist, killing people who didn't believe what he believed. And his life is completely, extraordinarily turned around. And he wants everyone to experience the grace he's experienced. And so he goes, just get it from me. I'm going to go every, I'm going to get shipwrecked and be put into prison, all for the sake of I just want people to know this. Secondly, we underestimate what um, pressure is on his gospel. He is dealing straight away with all these different influences trying to rob the gospel of its power. He has Judaizers saying, oh, Christians, you now need to be circumcised. Even if you're old, you're going to be circumcised. He's got Gnostics saying, hey, why don't we go down to the pagan temple and uh, experience some prostitute fun? Uh, we've got uh, other people denying that Jesus was a human being. Uh, we've got others saying, hey, incest is fine. All of these attacks coming on him, and he's saying, no, Listen to me, because I've experienced the real Jesus. Listen to me. He's what you need. And as he says in 1 Corinthians, follow me as I follow Jesus. And that is actually what's going on here. So let's give him a bit of a break. He is effectively saying this. 
You want joy. Joy comes from obedience. Lasting joy. A whole life of celebration and hope and laughter and deep-seated, secure jubilation comes in the process of and a result of a life dedicated to following Christ and nowhere else. Now, this is not to say that there aren't, of course, moments of exaltation and joy, shots in the arm of jubilation. I know I go on about my children a lot, but Margot scored the first goal in football uh, in her match yesterday, and um, this is her reaction. I was so ecstatic. I ran onto the pitch with my arms in the air, and I had a slightly too short T-shirt on, so you could see a bit of belly, and I just ran and screamed. It was amazing. They won 5-0. The other team was just a disaster. Anyway, uh, that's her. And there are, of course, moments in church of joy and celebration and laughter where we feel like we're on cloud nine. And we never, ever want to leave. These are actually all essential experiences for us. We need them. However, just to hop from one experience to another is never going to be enough for us. Because it's only just going to be on the surface. Because ultimately, true joy is not a, an experience. It's found in a lifetime of following Christ. And it's why we do not need to be perpetually happy in the same way that we do not need to be perpetually unhappy, neither of which are Christians. Are Christian. It's why we can find people who sort of pump others up with joy when we're actually not feeling particularly joyful, so grating. I remember being told um, that if I was a Christian, I should be smiling. I didn't have the heart to tell this person who was smiling in quite a strange way at me in my face that I'd just split up with my girlfriend. My dad had just been diagnosed with a terminal illness and I didn't actually really know whether I believed in God at all. So no, I would not be smiling. I didn't tell him that. Perpetual happiness, no more Christian than perpetual sadness. And it's why we vigorously reject any teaching along the lines of God wants you to enjoy your suffering. Or we should be praising him for all the difficulties that have come our way. Now, Scripture does command us to live in a state of thanksgiving in the midst of all situations. It does not, though, command us to celebrate the presence of evil or any of its um, symptoms. True Christian joy is based in the depths of God's ongoing transformational work in our lives. Happiness, on the other hand, uh, comes from the English word hap, where we get the word happenstance from, is completely dependent on what's actually happening in the moment. So we're happy when happy things are happen happening, and we're sad when sad things are happening. Joy is deeper and lasting, and it's only ever found in a life dedicated to following Jesus. It's why, when we see those older Christians who you may or may not know, who despite possibly many troubles in their lives, are still full of joy, 
and other people who have everything and yet are miserable at their core. So, how then do we rejoice? Firstly, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. This follows on from what Jesus uh, teaches in his Sermon on the Mount. Do not be anxious about anything. I am not sure there is a more, sorry, I, I think I am sure that there is not more of a challenging proposition for our times than this. Our eldest daughter in, is in middle school. All her friends are kind of 13 or under. Uh, it's a privileged private middle school. These kids have got everything they ever need. Yet, as far as I can tell, half of them have been diagnosed with anxiety disorders. They're 13. We can have so much, but still be so worried. I wonder why. Well, think of why you get anxious. I want to suggest that a large cause of our worries stems from unmet desire. And whilst we'd like to believe that our desires are our own, actually they tend to take on a life of their own, and it's less like we rule them and more like they rule us. We see what others have got and we want it. And when we don't get it, anxiety rises, are we going to get left behind? Or even if we do get what we think we want, it just leaves us wanting more and more and more and more. Because deep down, our desires are just plain old envy and jealousy. Not necessarily just for things, more so for identity. As I've said before, no one desires an Oscar because they really like little gold statues. People desire Oscars because of what people have said that being an Oscar winner says about who you are. The more people want one, the stronger the desire to have one becomes. And particularly in Western, hugely affluent cultures like ours, where the majority of people haven't really needed anything, actually needed something like warmth or, coal or clothing or food for centuries, desire runs rampant. 50 years ago, you might be connected to, I don't know, 100 people who could be the thing, uh, who could represent the thing that you desire. But now, aren't we connected to thousands upon thousands upon thousands, all showing us what we could have, this house, this life, this beauty, this thing, this sense of being, this put-togetherness. More and more and more and more desire, leading to more and more and more anxiety. Jesus says, do not be anxious. All the while, in this context... We are actually told that, oh, we can overcome our anxiety. Just be more content. Love yourself. Exercise mindfulness. Show gratitude. Slow down. Be grateful. Think positive thoughts. And then it will all disappear. Now, I'm not for one second saying those things are not good things. They absolutely are. But... From a Christian perspective, these are like band-aids when we're in need of open-heart surgery. Because even if we are able to do all of these things, we'll go and see someone else who's doing them better, 
and then the anxiety returns. We want to be like them, or we'll find something else to fixate on, and so the sorry loop continues over and over. The truth is, we will only have a carefree existence when we realize that all our worries, all our desire, are fundamentally rooted in the same place, a place that only Jesus can go. Where modern culture says, you have the power to overcome, Jesus says, no, you don't, only I do. Because a spiritual problem needs a spiritual solution, and this is a spiritual problem. And yet, thanks be to God, Jesus on the cross kills off all of this desire, this creeping anxiety, this sense of I need more, I've got to be somewhere else, I need to progress, I've got to go further on. A spiritual problem needs a spiritual solution. The gospel says Jesus has provided for all of us a carefree existence where our desire need to only be the one thing that can actually fully be met, namely the desire for him and more of him. So in his resurrection, Jesus lays claim to being the one who can actually carry all these burdens. He can destroy them. And he sets us free from all that might hold us back. Because death, sin, desire, anxiety, no more in that moment on the cross. So when we are saying we are casting our cares on Jesus, do you know what we're actually doing? We are actually saying, sorry. We are actually saying, would you forgive me? We are actually saying, could you wipe the slate clean for me? I am sorry for going after all these things that are not of you. What we are doing is confessing our need, our weakness. That is the only solution. That is the only path to an anxiety-free life. You want to not worry anymore? Ask Jesus to forgive you for all the things that you have gone after that have caused the anxiety. That's the solution. So should we just do that now as a church, just quickly? It won't take long. It's all been done on the cross anyway. We're just receiving it. Let's do it now. Not out loud, that would be weird. I'll lead us. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the ways in which I have put the things that I've thought have been important before you. Would you come now and would you forgive and renew and set me on my feet again? And I pray that you would take all my cares, all my fears and worries, and that you would destroy them on the cross as you already have done and set me free. In Jesus' name, amen. So, second point. Verse 6, let your requests be known to God. When we put our trust in Christ, 
our prayer life is transformed, as we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Rather than forcing God to do the things that we really want him to do, when we know that he is in charge, we are able to follow where he is leading. We can present our request to God saying, these are the things that we need, these are the things we want, you already know them anyway, but I trust you. And I leave them in your hands. You do what you want to do, because I know you're God and I am not. Final piece of the path towards joy. Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, verse 8, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. So it's not just a case of not being anxious. It's not just a case of presenting our requests to God. It's also having our minds and hearts focused on the things of beauty and goodness and joy that God has given to us. Um, we have a dog. It's the wrong dog. Uh, we've grown to love him. The thing about our dog is he's always happy in quite an annoying way. Just always very pleased to see us. And he wags his tail. I know some people don't like dogs. Probably not Christians. But uh, I'm joking. Uh, but... He, he just wags and smiles. And he, do you know what? He brings so much joy to our life. Hannah is, is perpetually happy. She's never like this before. We should have got a dog the first year of marriage, shouldn't we? She loves that thing. It's such an idiot. Anyway, there is so much to be joyful about in creation. Do you want to see some really weird things that God has created? Here they are. Alton, can we have them? Is it not working? We're getting there. Shall I move on? Yes. <laughs> okay. There were some pictures of God's creation. They were very funny. Anyway. So don't be anxious. Present your request to God. Set your mind on the goodness of God. And the result of all of this is peace. Verse 7. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's peace, his peace, his lasting peace that enables us to be lifted out of all the ways in which the world would have us use our joy and our laughter. Oh, okay. Okay, so that's, that's a blobfish. God made that. Next. What is that? Look at his mouth. I have no idea what that is. Next thing. Yeah, he's got, he's got a very strange penis nose. Uh, next. Yeah, it's a funny horse. Uh, should be a llama or something next. And uh, then this last one. I couldn't believe that this existed. Oh, not him. The next, <laughs> the next one. Look at that. God make that shark horse. He didn't really. Set your mind on things that bring joy, that are good and lovely and wonderful. 
and see the joy rise in you. <laughs> this is such a mess of a talk, isn't it? It's going all wrong. <laughs> because what comes is God's peace, and that enables us to rise above all the ways in which um, our culture tells us to be joyful and, um, and uh, to laugh. If you think about the way people use humor, it says a lot about how they see themselves. One of the possible ways of using humor is um, to put other people down. In a former life, I uh, worked in advertising. I used to write ads for various different ad agencies. And uh, one time I was um, working with a whole group of people, and we were working for Rolex, the watch company. And the whole team were really struggling with the brief. We just couldn't work out a new novel way of selling Rolexes. And then uh, we'd been doing this for a while. We were all in a room together. And then suddenly the, um, one of the partners of the agency, the creative director, came in and said, I was very young. I was like 21. He said, guys, you can't, you've got to get, how can you not do this? Come on, sell me a Rolex. Look, I've got a Rolex. And he showed his big, shiny Rolex. Sell me my Rolex. And I said to him, uh, with everyone else there, um, does that make you feel really big and clever? I thought everyone would laugh. No one laughed. <laughs> he then said, no, owning 25% of this very successful ad agency and having lots and lots of money makes me feel big and clever. And then everyone laughed. And then I wasn't working at that ad, ad agency much <laughs> anymore. It's the way of using humor to basically say, what I was saying is, I think I'm better than you. What he was saying is, I know I'm better than you. <laughs> Ultimately, it's self-importance. It's not conducive, actually, to fun. And the same is true for people who mercilessly mock themselves over and over and over again. Now, as a Brit, we have cornered the market in self-deprecating humor. You guys cannot do it as well as us. We are the best or the worst. But if you've ever been around someone who mercilessly mocks themselves over and over and over again, it looks like humility, but after a while, it becomes so boring and grating and difficult because also it is a sense of self-importance. It's self-relatedness at its height. And of course, there is another self-righteous use of humor, which is to not use it at all. <laughs> In fact, self-righteousness produces people who um, end up not finding anything particularly funny at all. Amos Oz, the um, writer and journalist, once said, fanatics don't really do jokes, which is very true, the moralistic and the religious have no sense of irony because they take themselves so seriously. They're so self-conscious, so self-absorbed that they struggle to have any room for joy or laughter in their lives at all. These patterns of humor, looking down on other people, self-absorption, self-righteousness, this is the opposite of the peaceful existence that Jesus comes to bring. Because what Jesus says to us and what is at the heart of the gospel is this, is that it's his grace that has found us. And in order to receive grace, what we have admitted is that we don't have it all together. 
that we're actually a little bit weak. There is no shame in that. It's actually who we all are, whether we're in here or out there. We all do not have it together. And we know that left to our own devices, probably we won't do a great job of running our lives. We know that we need him. But what he does is he comes in with his grace and transforms us out of it. He comes to destroy all self-righteousness, all self-absorption. And what that means is that those who allow themselves to be infected and invaded by his power are not overawed by anyone, least of all themselves. We're not going to be shocked by anyone's behavior, ours or other people's. Because we know there, but for the grace of God, go I. We are all in the same boat, ultimately. And so we have a huge amount, actually, to laugh at, starting with our own weakness. It is good to know who we are and to laugh at it. We don't have to pretend we're something we're not. We don't have to be embarrassed by ourselves. We don't have to lie or excuse or manipulate things to try and make ourselves look better. Ultimately, we know that our worth is not in the things that we have or haven't done. We don't need to exaggerate our achievements because we know that our worth is down to what he thinks about us. It's down to his grace, and he thinks we're extraordinary. We think, he thinks we're the most valuable things in the world. That is our worth. And so, we don't have to take ourselves too seriously. Unfortunately, lots of Christians take themselves way too seriously. We should be laughing the whole time. We should be the first at the bar and the last on the dance floor. Because life is not that serious, actually. And we don't have to take others too seriously as well. It's one of the great joys of our growing staff team, is that we have more people to make fun of. It's just so good. On Tuesday, we were praying, and Hannah was praying, and she meant to say something like, um, thank you for the best you've given. And she said, thank you for the breast you've given in the prayer. And we all laughed at her a lot, because it was funny. And it also reminded me of my favorite story uh, in church. We were in a big meeting. I love sharing stories of things that go wrong in church. It's so fun. Um, but we were in this big meeting, and uh, it was probably like 1,500 people. And it was um, very powerful worship. And then uh, the guy who was leading the service said, okay, uh, we want to hear prophetic words. So um, just where you are in your seat, like we're all learning together. It's all going to be fine, like everything that we would do here. Just whatever comes into your mind, don't think about it too much. Just say it. It's probably God. So 1,500 people, and this guy just shouts, I see a breast. And then he says, I see two breasts. And that was it. We should laugh at each other. We're quite funny. The wonder of God's kingdom is that it is a diverse kingdom. 
We do not need to compete with one another. We do not need to compare ourselves to one another because you are uniquely, individually, fearfully and wonderfully made and you're perfect, just as you are, because of what he's done. And what we see is people who are very different to us and things that are quite different to us are quite funny. Should we, we should celebrate our, dis, our differences. We should laugh at each other. But, as Paul says, in gentleness. Let's do it knowing that we are all in the same boat. All on the way to heaven. Celebrating the beauty of what he's done and the gospel. So to end this total mess of a talk, how do we celebrate? Well, we've talked about laughter and would you like to join Annie and Ben's social committee? Yes, you would. You have to put on parties. That's your job. That's what they're doing, putting on parties. Because we just want to invite a lot of people to come to party with us. Great. Join their committee. Secondly, I think expressing um, creativity and imagination. This town, of course, is, is built on it. Um, it's something that we could do better. And I want to um, try and encourage us to see the importance of art and beauty, of imagination, of story, and to celebrate that as a community. I don't know how we're going to do this, but we'll try and work it out. Um, and thirdly, we can worship. We can express our thanksgiving and our praise to the King of Kings. It sets everything in its right place. I need to end by saying this. Paul says that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we mourn with those who mourn. What we are not doing is pretending that bad things do not happen. What we are not doing is saying that there is not heartache and trauma and that we come alongside and we ask the Spirit to comfort all those who are going through heartache. But what we are saying is that deep down, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. That's the heart of the gospel. And we celebrate that. We join with heaven and we praise the King of Kings because that's not just wishful thinking. It's what the cross and the resurrection says to us at its heart. That he has won. His kingdom will come and it's here right now. So let's join in it and let's celebrate it. Amen. Amen. It's not usually this disorganized, I promise. But anyway, that'll do. Should we sing some songs then?